But if you would, I'd love for you to open up your Bibles to Psalm 91. That's where we'll be this morning, Psalm 91. So we are going to read that psalm together. So if you would, we'll begin in verse 1. Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter... Oh, sorry. I'm in the NASB translation, by the way. Um, You can be in whichever one you're comfortable with, but that's the one I'm reading from. Sorry about that. Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in him whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or by the arrow that flies by day or of the pestilence that stalks in the darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your right side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, for you have made the Lord my refuge. Even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil will befall you, nor any plague come near your tent, for he will give you his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Because he, is, because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and, and let him see my salvation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your wonderful, treasurous word. Lord, this is your knowledge that was given to men by the power of the Holy Spirit to write for us to have today, to love today, to live by today, to stand on. This is objective truth from eternity. This is your knowledge from the beginning. And I pray that today this beautiful and wonderful psalm speaks to our hearts. It brings us to a higher level of worship, and I pray that it drives every one of us to the cross of Jesus Christ. In your name I pray, amen. Well, on July 6th of 1415, a man named Jan Hus was condemned to death. Now, Jan was the most powerful preacher in his day. He was a preacher of truth, he was a preacher of conviction, and he was the pastor of a church called Bethlehem Church in Prague, Czech Republic. Now, he was condemned to death by the Roman Catholic Church because he proclaimed sound truth, such as that all believers were a part of the church and that the Bible was authoritative and that his biggest claim, though, was that Jesus Christ alone was the head of the church and that believers were bound to submit to him in the scriptures and worship God through obedience through the scriptures. And for that proclamation, John Huss was sentenced to death by the church, the Catholic church, by, via being burned at the stake. 
At this time, the Roman church had converted to Christianity. Their ruler, Constantine, actually came to faith in Christ. But much like what we saw with the Pharisees in the Gospels, the Roman Catholic Church took the, the, the scriptures and they put them in their Latin language and they controlled distribution, they controlled the teaching, and so therefore false teachings were being taught. Things such as the Pope was the head of the church, and he was the authority above the scriptures. And so this resulted in setting up a corrupt system such as like a financial gain for church leaders. So it was in the form of selling indulgences. So what that would mean is you would come to your local Roman Catholic pastor in that time and you would say, uh, Father, I have sinned. Well, what'd you do? I lied. Well, here's that'll be 40 bucks. And so you would pay that priest 40 bucks and he would say, your sins are forgiven. Sin no more. This was kind of stuff that was going on. But John, Jan Hus stood up to those teachings. And he sent a tidal wave throughout church history that would continue to have men stand up for truth like Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a German monk who got a hold of Jan's writings and he, 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 he converted those writings, the Bible, excuse me, he converted the scriptures from Latin to his native German language. How about that? Converted it to German and he found these glorious truths that stood up against the Catholic Church at this time. And in 1517, he nailed 95 arguments to the Roman Catholic Church door. Protests against what was being taught in that day. Of course, we know this as the Great Reformation, the regaining of the truth of Scripture in church history. Or how about a man like Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers? In England, he spent much of his time preaching that Jesus Christ was the sole head of the church and that it would be considered blasphemy for any man to consider himself to be head of the church. Or the apostles, who we read about, who gave us these inspired writings by the author of the Holy Spirit. They stood up for truth. They stood up for false teachings that were conspiracies and ideologies, but they preached Christ. And they were put to death. Peter crucified upside down, historical documents tell us, as well as Paul beheaded. These great men stood up for Scripture. And for many of them, it cost them their life. And we see missionaries today standing up for truth that are having their lives being, being taken from them. And many of us, we face persecution today for standing up for truth. But my question for you this morning is, looking at Psalm 91... And bringing it to a man like Jan Hus, who stood up for the truth, who believed the Bible was authoritative, as Jan was on that stake, could he read Psalm 91 and still believe it to be true? Could he still see these declarations of protection and, and, and glorious deliverance as he's laid there or, or was hung there? Could he still give himself to the scriptures? Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that yes, emphatically, yes, 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 God protects through suffering, God protects us from suffering, and God will protect in eternity. You see, the Bible does not promise us that as a Christian, we won't see suffering. God's Word doesn't tell us that. When we come to a psalm like Psalm 91, we have to understand the literary writings. So Psalm 91, while speaks truth, can we expect, can we believe that God can protect us from physical harm? Absolutely. I had a Psalm 91 moment this morning. 
I was leaving to come here. The highway intersection of 113, the light turns green. I start going. So I guess I'm saying I'm looking up, so maybe I'm a little guilty here. But I look up, and I see Quest Trucking coming straight through the green light. If I'd have been five seconds earlier, your boy Joe would have been in a ditch. God's providence was there. That's the first thing I thought of, providence. Thank you, Lord. God protects us. We can't expect that. But we also see in God's word that we will have suffering in our day. We will see suffering. So what we do when we take a poetic reading like Psalm 91, we take scripture and we interpret it with scripture. We understand what the writer was trying to do. The writer is proclaiming truth. But he's also trying to stir up your emotions. He's trying to stir up your affections for Jesus. He's trying to stir up your affections for the Lord, much like we see in the writings of Revelation. The prophecies he saw were real, but the way John wrote them, he wrote them for you to feel some kind of way about the spiritual battle that that book is teaching. And so when we come to these, these verses, we take Scripture and we interpret it with Scripture, meaning we take the whole counsel of God's Word and we interpret it through the passage. Because sometimes when we don't do that, sometimes when we don't put more effort into digging into the word, we can misinterpret passage and we can go into a, a bad place or we can take a passage and, and find something that's really not intended to be taught. In fact, that is what Satan would love for you to do. Satan wants nothing more than you to not understand your Bible and to have suffering come to you in this psalm and then deconstruct from your faith. We see that with young people today. There's all kinds of deconstruction stories because young people aren't taught to handle the problem of evil, which is not a problem. God's sovereign and in control of everything. But when we don't bring in the counsel, the full counsel of God, we can go to these things. If you would, turn with me to Matthew 4 for just a second. Matthew 4. Here we see Satan confronting Jesus during his 40 days of temptation. Now, Jesus, remember, he was God, but he was also man, truly God, truly man. So he got hot like you and I did, or you and I do. He was fatigued. He was fasting for 40 days, so he felt pain and suffering. The God of this universe felt it. And so Satan came after him and attacked his weakness. And listen to what Satan does here. You'll hear something familiar here. Verses 5 through 6, and I'm going to go ahead and read through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, here it comes, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put your Lord God to the test. So we see here Satan quoted verse 12 from Psalm 91, what we just read. He took it, quoted it, misapplied it to get Jesus to obey him, to fall into his temptation, and our Lord did not. Our Lord said, you shall not put your Lord God to the test. Also quoting back to Deuteronomy when they were in the wilderness. Satan would love nothing more than for us to not to fall into these traps. So we see here that Satan misapplied this this, this text, but what about when we suffer? I mean, why do believers suffer? Well, we get our answer from its core at Genesis 3. Now, we know this chapter. This is the fall of man. 
God gave Adam specific instructions, obedience to his word. Then he formed Eve and he united the two as one flesh under a covenant of obedience in a beautiful, perfect setting of the Garden of Eden. Beautiful setting, perfect. But what I find so fascinating, and I may be reading into it, but this is God's given freedom for Adam to bear responsibility to obedience to God. And of course, you know what takes place. Satan, as the serpent comes, deceives Adam and Eve, gets them to disobey God, thus causing God's judgment and curse upon the world. But it's man's responsibility for the fall of the world. So you and I live in a world that's infected by sin. We willingly live outside of God's will, as Pastor Bradley told us last week, that our natural will is to run from God. Naturally, that's what we naturally do. But our sin is deadly. In fact, that's why we have death. Romans says, for the wages of sin is death. Our sin is as deadly literally and figuratively. When sin is committed, there can be personal harm to yourself. Uh, When sin is committed, there's personal harm to others. But we feel the effect of a fallen world. Just because you are a Christian does not mean you may not get cancer. Because you're a Christian does not mean you may not feel the effects of a pandemic like we're dealing with with COVID-19 and other things. Now, these things are biological at function, but on a cosmic level, on the big picture level, it's a result of a fallen world and sin. But even in sin of humanity, God has not left his people without hope. The promise has always been clear. Turn from your sins Come to God. Turn from your ways. Come from God. Even in the Old Testament, salvation was clear. Listen to what the prophet Habakkuk says in a crazy time where Israel was in disobedience. He says simply in chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 4, he says, trust in the Lord forever for the Lord himself is an everlasting rock. So for you and I today under this new covenant, sees us saved by trusting the Lord, but it comes through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who came to the earth as a man to save sinners, to bear God's wrath on the cross, defeating death in three days, rising from the dead, giving hope to us. And even in Jeremiah, way before Christ, God said, I will take my spirit and I will plant it in their hearts. So Christ comes, dies on the cross, gives us hope, and we repent and believe the power of the Holy Spirit changes the sinner's heart, brings him to God, and turns him from his sin. Many of you have felt that life change in your life. We pray for people to feel that life change in your life. And we look for hope to the day that Christ returns and judges the world and restores the world back to its perfect setting from the beginning. God gives us eternal satisfaction through his son, but it doesn't stop there. God provides protection from and through suffering today. He will give protection from and through suffering today. He's not going to totally remove suffering But he provides protection through it. Think about Genesis, the book of Genesis, chapter 50, verse 20, the story of Joseph, right? The end of this story, we see Joseph live a long life where he was abandoned by his brothers. He was abused, falsely accused. But by the end of his life, by God's provision, Joseph finds himself in a noble high position as the prime minister of Egypt. And he comes face to face with his brothers, the ones who betrayed him. 
And he says to him in verse 20, that he has a chance for revenge, but he says to him in verse 20, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so what Joseph is saying is through this journey, through this evil I came back, God has been protecting me and for his glorious promise to save multiple people through this famine and to bring you, my brothers, rejoice and forgiveness. That's a picture of the gospel. They didn't deserve forgiveness, but he gave them grace. All for the evil that they meant, God took it and meant it for good. John Piper wrote a book recently called Providence. And he takes this idea of God working through evil to bring the good all the way back from the beginning in the garden. Listen to this in page 177 of his book. He says this, As for you, Adam and Eve, as he's saying what we can say in this idea, you meant for evil, but God meant it for good. Your purpose in sinning was the vain pursuit of pleasure through self-autonomy, but God's purpose in Permitting your sin was to give his people the pleasure of seeing the savoring glory of his grace in the suffering triumph of his son. So in their evil act of disobedience, God's going to bring glory to himself by bringing those who sin to himself through Jesus Christ. All for his glory. Think about Romans 8.28. What does Paul tell us? He says that, and we know that God causes all things to work for, together for the good, for those who love God according to his purpose. Look, this isn't a verse just saying, hey, there's a silver lining in everything. (laughs) No, bad things happen. Sometimes it's just bad things. But in somehow, some way, God is sovereign and in control of all suffering. And somehow, we may not even know to this side of eternity, he is working together. It says together, all things together to bring the good like this story of Joseph. This should bring us great comfort in our suffering. Because some of you may be going through something. Some of you may have just recently come out of something. And how is God working through that? Well, God's word tells us he is. It tells us he is sovereignly in control. Think about Luke chapter 21, verses 16 through 18. This is Jesus giving what's called the Olivet Discourse. So he's teaching about the end times, the end of the world. And there's discussion, there's debate about the order of how he's teaching that. But he says this in Luke 16, excuse me, 21, 16 through 18. You will even be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. They will kill some of you. And you will be hated by everyone because of my name, but not a hair of your head will be lost. So all these bad things are going to happen to you, but yet you will lose nothing. What's he saying there? He's saying you will face pain, suffering in this life, my disciples, my soon-to-be apostles, but you will be preserved at eternity When they stepped into their martyrdom, their death, they were seen in eternity with God to enjoy him forever because of Christ. And that is true for you and I today. It's because of Christ, because of this glorious promise he's given us, we have hope for the future. As Christians, we can look to our death with joy of running this long race. But God works through our suffering. He protects us from suffering, works through our suffering builds us stronger through it, but then protects us in the end of the age, at the end of our life. He protects us in eternity with him forever from our sins. 
So let's bring that idea of God working in our suffering, God being a protector even in our suffering. Bring that idea to this text, Psalm 91. Looking at verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. So that word to dwell means to live. It means to hang out, to reside somewhere. And the shelter of the Most High, many scholars believe that it speaks to the secret place of protection for God's people. Now, they're not speaking to like a second heaven or a heaven or anything that we don't know about. It's just quite simply God's provision, his hand of provision on his people. So the psalmist who is saying those who are dwelling in this secret place will be in the shelter of the Almighty, will be under his guiding care. They have to dwell there. Psalm 90 Verse 1, and by the way, we don't necessarily know who wrote this psalm, but Jewish tradition attributes it to the previous author, which was Moses. So many believe Moses wrote Psalm 91, but in Psalm 90, the one we know he wrote, in verse 1, Moses talks about this idea of being in this dwelling place of God, and he says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And look, Moses would know that. I mean, he experienced that firsthand. Delivered from slavery, from the Egyptians, the parting of the Red Sea, and then the comfort and care that God provided in the wilderness, even when they were disobedient. Psalm 35, verse 5, David writes this, You hide them in the secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of men. You keep them in secretly in shelter from strife and tongues. So David speaks to the secret dwelling place of God. But back to the opening verse. This is a result of God's grace and provision, but it's coming in as a result of a communion, a relationship, a dwelling with God in his presence. Charles Spurgeon said this quote, Every child of God looks to the inner sanctuary and the mercy seat, yet do not dwell in the most holy place. They run to it at times and enjoy it occasionally, but they do not habitually reside in the mysterious presence. So essentially Spurgeon is saying that some people don't enjoy this blessing and comfort and protection because they're not dwelling with God. It's not a place where they live. It reminds me very much of ancient Israel. What did Israel do? They were delivered by God, and then they would turn to disobedience. But then when they got in trouble, God rescue us, and then God would pull them out. And it was just this constant cycle, much like you and I probably have experienced in our own lives. So we see that the writer is telling us to stay in that dwelling place with God. And then it says this in verse 2. The psalmist tells us in verse 2 that Verse 2, let me read that real quick. I'm sorry. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God, whom in I trust. So the psalmist tells us that God is his refuge. God is his fortress, this unbreakable fortress that he can run to as a refugee in a fallen world. He can run to that place in this dangerous world. God's protection is found in the one who dwells in him and trusts in him. Like a fox that runs to his hole or a bird that flies to his nest, you and I run to Christ. He is our protector. He is the one that covers our sin by what he did on the cross. He has opened that invitation for you to repent and believe. And when you do that, truly do that and come to him, you can find that secret covering place that secret protection that God has for his people. In verse 3, 
says this, For he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. Now, the CSB actually goes more direct with this. He, they literally call it a bird trapper. So in this translation, the people who read this in this time, they probably saw it as that, more in that, that area. But I like this translation because it gives us an object. It gives us something to see here. So I don't know if you guys have ever seen a snare trap. You hunters or uh, outdoorsmen here probably, probably know that, probably know what that is. I had to do a little research on it. But a snare trap is basically designed to catch predators such as coyotes. And so essentially what you have here is a trap with a wired noose. And when the coyote feel, uh, is either baited or he runs through a path he's used to run through, he gets snatched up. And so you can take care of that coyote problem, snare trap. Okay? So the psalmist gives this specific analogy of a snare trap. But look a little deeper at this. Some scholars read this as just, uh, just basically people conspiring against Christians, but I think there's something deeper to find here. There's a snare, and then there's a trapper. So there's a, a trap set, and then there's someone who set the trap. Look at the language. And think about this from a spiritual aspect. Behind every lustly, worldly desire is sin, Behind every sin is idolatry, and behind every idolatry is Satan himself. Satan wants nothing more than for a Christian to chase a desire and be entrapped by sin and live outside the will of God. Look at Judas, one of the disciples of Christ. He was trapped by money. He was trapped by silver. And so he betrayed the Son of God all under God's sovereignty. But he he betrayed the Son of God for a trap. David, who saw Bathsheba bathing bathing outside and his lustly desires, he committed adultery with her and then had her husband killed, as we heard last week. And the Scripture says the Lord was, was displeased with the Lord. Even a man like David can fall into the snare of the trapper. Spurgeon with another quote. He says, we are as foolish as weak little birds when we are apt to be lured by our destruction by cunning foes. But if we dwell near to God and we see to it that the most skillful deceiver will not entrap us, Satan, the fowler, betrays the unguarded soul a thousand ways. But what does the writer tell us? Who delivers from the snare of the trapper? It's God who delivers from the snare of the trapper. It's the Lord who, in that dwelling place, will open the believer's eyes, open to his law, open his word through the lens of the, the, lens of the word to the world, and we see this world, and we see what is sin, and we see what pleases God, and that is how God protects us from that snare of the trapper. We dwell with him, we commune with him in the word, we commune with him in prayer, and we can see those lustly traps and desires, and we run to them and run to the cross. But you know, Paul speaks about this a little bit in Romans 7, and I'm just kind of paraphrasing. He goes from this glorious truth of how we're justified in our sins, we are justified as innocent because of Christ and how we are in union with him through his death, our old life dies, we are raised to a new life as he was raised. And then he goes into Romans 7, and he talks about how he, oh, how he desires to follow God's law, but his sinful flesh is struggling. It's a fight for him. But then he goes into Romans 8. He says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he says that you are freed from the slavery of sin. 
because of Christ. It is Christ who convicts a man for his sin. It's the Holy Spirit who changes the heart. And it's God in his dwelling place that will save a man from the snare of the trapper. So think about things you've experienced. Think about your life. Students, think about what you experience in school, what things you see online. There's snares all over the place in this life. But there's a way to avoid them, and it's in that dwelling place of the Lord. Verse 4 through 6, we see protection. We see proclamations of protection, the psalmist says in verse 4. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. So this picture of God as a mother bird covering her, her young in her wings, sheltering them from danger. Psalm 57, verse 1, David kind of hints at this, to be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until destruction passes by. And David wrote that while he was running from Saul, who was coming to kill him. He was actually in a cave, and he wrote that psalm right there. And then we see in verse 5, You will not be afraid of the terror by night, or the arrow that flies by day, or the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, or the destruction that lays waste at noon. So we see that we can... Pun to God in our fears. We don't have to fear this world because God has protection. He provides us protection even when we are, even when we feel affliction of our suffering. He's working through that. And then we come to verses seven through eight. We see the tone change just a little bit. It says, A thousand may fall at your right side, and ten thousand may fall at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will look only with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. So we see a vivid picture of some form of judgment in verse 8. Now, we can trace that back to maybe them seeing that the uh, Exodus plague where uh, the judgment of plague came down on Egypt and all those who took the, the, the innocent spotless lamb, put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. It was a picture of sins being covered and so the plague would come upon those who had not taken under that, that sin covering, which is a picture of Christ to come. Those who are covered by the blood of Christ will be passed over for their judgment of sin. So many Many scholars look at it that way, but I think in an eternal perspective, we can see from the first person view here, many falling at judgment and punishment. This is the day that we will all stand and give an account for our lives because God cannot let sin go unpunished. You know, that question comes up, right? How can a loving God, how can a loving God punish people? Well, if he's a loving God, an almighty, holy God, he has to be a just God. The the judge can't let the murderer or the rapist or, 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 or burglar, he can't let them go without a justice being served. And so God must judge sin. But the question is, who's taking the punishment? Because Christ took the punishment and offered that to us as a gift, not of ourselves, but of God's grace through repentance and faith. But we see that those in the dwelling place are protected. Those who are in that dwelling place with Christ are protected. God is good and faithful and mercy for his sacrifice on the, clo- on the cross. Those who are in Christ on that day, they will be justified for what Christ did. Now look at verse 9. We kind of see a, a, almost like a summation here. So we see... 
for you have made the Lord your refuge. So he's reaffirming what we saw in verses one through two. He's reaffirming even the most high your dwelling place. And then the result, no evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent, for he will give you his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. He will bear you up from their hands that you, your foot does not strike a stone. You will tread upon the lion and cobra. The young lion will trample down. So verse 9, he reminds us to take comfort in the protection of God. He reminds us that God is our dwelling place, our refuge, and we can trust him. In verse 10 through 13, we see more of these poetic promises of protection. But then look at verse 14. This is so glorious and so beautiful. God actually speaks back to the psalmist in a way that we may not understand. But he records this here, and it now this is God speaking back. Listen to this. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high, because he has known my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. He will be with me in trouble. I will rescue him in honor. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. And look at the gospel call here. Verses Back to verses 1 and 2 is he who dwells. So he who does this, he who dwells in God will receive these promises of protection. And then verse 9, it's he who did it is receiving these promises of protection. Then God confirms it in verse 14 through 16. The believer is delivered because of his love for God. Verse 14, it's a love, it's a relationship, it's a communion, it's a coming together to the Lord. And that's what gives him to be delivered. But in verse 15, he will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in times of trouble. So this is a future tense statement. This is, I will be with him when the trouble comes. I will be with him. That's what the Lord promises he told, Jesus told his disciples in the upper room, we call it in John chapters 14 on through 16 and through it a little bit in 17, we see that the upper room discourse. So this is Jesus sharing his last moments with his disciples. And he, he tells them that you'll be persecuted, but I will send a helper. And that helper is the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity said, you would, I will teach, he will teach you, he will guide you in your suffering. And that is true for us today. We call upon the Lord for protection. We call upon the Lord for guidance. And he's given us that Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit that even says in the book of Romans that the Spirit prays prayers when we don't know what to say, when we don't know what to pray for. In Romans 8, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. In Matthew 6, Jesus tells all that were listening, do not worry about your life, for God knows what you need. He says, if God feeds the birds and grows the grass, why would he not protect you? God is our provider. And then in verse 16, beautiful. With a long life, I will satisfy him, and I will let him see my salvation. So what do we take from this? What do we take from these poetic, beautiful promises? Again, God is with us in our suffering. He works through our suffering. 
And he will ultimately protect us on that great day. And we will see him if we've repented and believed in Jesus. We will see him and dwell with him in eternity. I can't help but think in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. We know the story of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego who were... Forced by, because they were in exile in Babylon, and King Nebuchadnezzar set up this golden statue, and every time the music would play, everyone would bow down and worship that statue in a form of idolatry. And so all those that did not were thrown into a blazing fire. But what does Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego say? They say this startling statement. Shadrach, verse 16 of Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. So our God, who we serve, is able to deliver us from the blazing furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, listen to this, even if he does not, let it be known, O king, we are not going to serve your gods and worship them. Even if they fell in that fire and were burned, they still trusted in God. Why? Because God had a promise for them that if they would turn to him and believe in him, that they would be preserved. Their souls would be protected. Now, if you know that story, amazing story, they're thrown into the fire. Everybody's expecting them to be dead. But King Nebuchadnezzar looks down and he sees four people in the fire. He says, look at that, there's four people in the fire, and the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. And of course, we see that as Jesus Christ covering them from their judgment, the eternal flame, and they were covered from judgment. God protects our souls in eternity. God is also with us in our suffering. Now look at James, look how the book of James puts this. We see here in James chapter 1, Verses two through four. He says something strange. He says, Consider it joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. So what's James saying? He's in trials, Trust in the Lord. In trials, consider it joy because it's going to produce endurance. And with that endurance, you fall in love with God more and you cling to him more and trust that cross even more. One of our elders, I love this analogy. I've probably shared it before. He calls it faith accounts. You put your faith in God. You're in a hard time. You get through it by the power and provision and glorious grace of God. Now you've got an account of times that God has pulled through. And it just builds that faith more. You see, without God, suffering is just suffering as a result of the fallen world. But if you are covered in that glorious grace of Christ, if Christ is your dwelling place, if you have thrown your sins away and been with him in communion and see the cross and repent and trust him by faith, he is with you and your suffering is not alone. I want to close with one thing. One of our students in our student ministry, um, he said he wrote like a little sermonette. And I was like, oh, that's cool, man. Send it to me. This is what he sent to me. I'm going to turn to it, actually. Isaiah chapter 4. Oh, excuse me. Isaiah chapter 41. 
verses 9 through 10. And it's just so amazing that he sent it on this week. Verse 9 and 10. You who I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remote parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you, not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So my charge to you and my my call to you as brothers and sisters in Christ is to dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. Run to Christ in your suffering. Don't think that Christ is not in your suffering. You are not alone. He is there by the power of the Holy Spirit to continuously mold you and form you into that image of Christ that you desire to be. But you've got to dwell there. We've got to get in our word. We've got to get with him in prayer. We've got to come together as the church and be a church family and can worship God together. Christ, God, protects you He protects you through your suffering, and he will protect you in eternity. I can't help but think what Jan was thinking that day when he was about to be set to fire on that that stake. But I can tell you this. God was there, and God called him to the heavens for his faith because it's promised to us in his word. And we all have that promise today. So dwell in Christ, look to the cross, Bring your suffering to him and believe his promises. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you just humbled by your presence. Lord, you are the creator of all things. You are constantly working. You have not taken your hands off this world. Lord, you have not stepped back from anything. There is nothing that's a surprise to you. There is no suffering that's too great for you. And you promise us protection. You promise us protection through our suffering. And you promise us protection at eternity. Lord, we thank you for that glorious, glorious promise. God, we know that that comes by one way. Under this covenant, we're under this covenant of love. It comes through Jesus Christ and him alone. Lord, I pray that we all run to that cross. I pray that the remainder of this service, that we worship the cross, that we look to the cross, and we look to our King Jesus, who your word says is upholding everything in this universe right now. Lord, we look to the hope that one day he will come. He will come again, and he will judge the world in righteousness. And Lord, we know that by your promise, those who have believed and turned from their sins and trusted you will be seen as justified, guilty for their sin, but seen innocent because of you, Christ. You give us your righteousness as an account, as a free gift. And then when we stand before judgment, we'll be wearing your righteousness as a gift from you. Not for anything we've earned, but from your humility and your love. Lord, I pray that 
anyone in here who is suffering, that they would read Psalm 91 and they would see that God has a great promise, that he has not left them in their suffering, that he is pulling them in, in the pinions and in the, in the shadow of their wings, that they can dwell in the shadow of the Almighty, that they don't have to fear the arrow that flies by day, that they can hear that glorious text and they can pull it to their heart and look to you for comfort. Lord, we know you work through our suffering. You know you work in ways that strengthens us, that brings us closer to you. And I pray that everyone here sees the cross and brings himself to you. And if there is anyone here that has not given their life to Jesus, I pray that they see their sin, that they see your wrath for sin, but your love and your mercy. And I pray that they throw themselves to that cross, that they look to you for the mercy and the love that you have for them. Lord, I pray that for the remainder of this service that we worship you and give you all our praise that you most certainly deserve. In your name I pray, amen.